Research suggests there's evidence that growing up in poverty negatively impacts early childhood brain development, resulting in lower academic achievement and diminishing long-term health outcomes. On today's show, learn about research investigating the neuroscience of poverty. Poverty will affect cognitive abilities, brain structure will be affected. So there is a body of evidence that there is a correlation of impact on brain development in children. We'll also discover a clinical trial that's testing an experimental drug for treating a kidney disease. So the hope that we have a drug that gets approved that delay dialysis or delay the reaching the point of end-stage kidney disease. And later, we'll focus our CTSI on efforts to address disparities in food access and food security in our community. We are battling food system that does not serve equally or food is being exported in ways that create food insecurity. So our focus is about having people creating that direct food access. Come discover with us inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. There are many biological factors that can directly affect a child's brain development and growth. But there's increasing research investigating how environmental factors, such as growing up in poverty, can also be linked to early childhood brain development and potentially impacting the trajectory of lifelong health outcomes. Dr. Fabrice Jotterand is Associate Professor of Bioethics and Medical Humanities and Director of the Graduate Program in Bioethics at the Medical College of Wisconsin. He holds a second appointment as senior researcher at the Institute for Biomedical Ethics at the University of Basel, Switzerland. We spoke with him recently to explore his findings relative to the neuroscience of poverty. Dr. Jotaran's research comes from a larger study he's part of through the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Foundation called the Redirect Project. Redirect stands for Research in Early Childhood Development by Improving Residency and Equity. This is a broader project and my contribution is the contribution of bioethics and there are other disciplines involved such as sociology, biostat, epidemiology, and of course medicine. His role in the Redirect Project is twofold. First, my contribution to the project is to look at this question of equity. How do we improve equity? How do we improve access to health care? How do we diminish health disparities in Milwaukee and Wisconsin? So part of my project is to develop a conceptual framework that can address this specific question. And the second part... The second part is this neuroscience of poverty, looking at how these factors impact the brain of children. 
there is a correlation between lower socioeconomic status and, for instance, academic achievement. So how can we use this knowledge to improve our healthcare system, but also the quality of life of these children? And that's the part we're looking at today, the neuroscience of poverty. So what exactly does that mean? Dr. Jodaran breaks it down. First, neuroscience. A simple definition would be the study of the structure and function of the brain and the nervous system. So the neuroscience of poverty refers to... It's really to study how the brain interacts with the environment in the sense that I live in a particular area or city will affect my brain. If I'm always confronted to violence, this will affect my brain. If I live in a peaceful environment, this will also affect my brain positively. In studying the effects of poverty on health in America, Dr. Jodaran says there's reason for concern. Maybe 20% of all children in the United States live in poverty. Compared to Canada, same 20%. However, when we look at child well-being, Canada ranks much higher. Why is it the case? And what do we do to address this question? But while it's early in his research, he's hopeful to find answers to these questions and more in affecting positive change in our community and beyond. We are one of the wealthiest country in the world, and we see this poverty, especially in a context like Milwaukee. But now we have a better understanding of the brain. We have a better understanding of how we can use the knowledge from neuroscience. The idea is to use that knowledge, apply it, and help our community. In his research, Dr. Jodaran makes a distinction between poverty and socioeconomic status. He explains the significance of making this distinction. Poverty is often interpreted in terms of material poverty. But when we look at socioeconomic status, it includes material poverty in terms of access, economic poverty in terms of standards of living, also social poverty in terms of security, inclusion, social class, etc. Socioeconomic status is a broader perspective that will affect the standard of living of an individual. And Dr. Jadaran makes another distinction about his role in the research. I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm a neuroethicist. It's not that I'm studying scientifically the brain, but I'm interested in looking at the neuroscience of poverty to help frame public policies in terms of healthcare. So I think this is important to keep in mind. But in his role, he's already discovering compelling findings about the connection between socioeconomic status and health outcomes, brain development, and academic achievements. This is a new topic for me. But what I see in terms of the evidence is that poverty will affect cognitive abilities, which will end up by lower academic achievement. Brain structure will be affected by socioeconomic status. So there is a body of evidence that there is a correlation of impact on brain development in children. Next, we discussed how child brain development is neither 100% biological nor 100% environmental, but instead it's impacted by the intersection of factors of both. Poverty will affect brain structure, will affect the behavior of children, will affect academic achievement. The cause can be biological, can be environmental. All these factors will impact the development of the brain of children. 
the biology proper, but also the environmental factors that affect the biology. One example of this is poverty's impact on our brain due to its moldable, plastic-like quality during early childhood development. This is a very important distinction between nature and nurture, right? So nature is our biology, and nurture is how the environment affects our biology. So the idea in terms of brain plasticity is how the environment affects neural pathways in the brain. So if you're exposed to violence, this will affect your brain. It will have a consequence emotional. It will have a biological consequence. The idea is that it's never biology versus the environment. It's always the interaction between environment and biology. And brain plasticity is the idea that the brain will always be shaped by the environment. Then can our brain retain its plasticity so that socioeconomic factors can possibly be reversed through continuous continuing development later in life. In terms of the effect of trauma on the brain, again, I'm not a neurologist, I'm not a neuroscientist, but my understanding is that the brain continues to develop up to mid-20s, I think. And there's some evidence that you can reverse it. To what point, I don't know. As Dr. Jadaran notes, this is a newer area of public health research for him. But in general, how long has the neuroscience of poverty been studied? My understanding, based on the literature review I've done, early, mid-2000, people started looking at some of the evidence. And there are many studies out there looking at family context, community context. So it's relatively new. In terms of the bioethics literature, I haven't seen many articles. What I've seen is more about scientific studies looking at the evidence. And as a newer area of study, he says it's been met by its share of skeptics within the research and medical communities. Skepticism is about the evidence. To what extent you can translate what you see, the data you collect, and how can that impact the reality of this individual affected by poverty. So there is a problem of translation, right? We talk about translational research. The idea is that you do research, but it's not for just knowledge's sake, but it's to apply that knowledge and make a difference in the world. And some people are skeptical about the knowledge we gain and how this can influence or shape policies. One specific area of this research that has some people concerned is the idea of using cognitive enhancers for treating children with brain development deficiencies due to poverty rather than from genetic cognitive disorders. Cognitive enhancers are drugs that are used to boost cognitive functions such as memory, alertness, executive functions, even mood. So the idea is to compensate for abnormal cognitive ability. But even in the absence of an actual biological cognitive disability, people are thinking that we could use cognitive enhancers to compensate for the lack of academic achievement in children coming out of lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And therefore, they're saying that these individuals are healthy, but we can help to achieve better. So it's controversial, and personally, I have some quandaries about the use of cognitive enhancers to compensate for the lack of academic achievement. He elaborates on what concerns him. The problem I see here is that we're trying to treat a social problem through a technology, rather than thinking about 
about how can we participate in creating better schools. What we do is we push a pill and some individuals might need a drug to do better in school. But to say that we should promote the use of enhancers in healthy individuals, it seems to me dangerous because it undermines human agency. Don't misunderstand. Dr. Jodaran isn't completely against the use of cognitive enhancers. I'm not saying that we shouldn't use them. I think we could use them, but it should be case by case. And there are ethical and social issues that we need to address before we open the door to leave use of these drugs. What are the potential ethical and social issues he sees? We don't know the long-term effects. We don't have a study showing some evidence that these drugs are safe and efficacious. There are issues of access. Then there is a problem of how you consent these individuals. So these are the major issues. And before we move in that direction, I think we should also look carefully at other opportunities. In the end, there's hope that research leads to a solution to address the education gap affected by the neuroscience of poverty. But where it comes to cognitive enhancers... It's not an either-or issue. And again, technology in general is wonderful. But the problem is there is an impulse in the United States. We have a social problem. Let's push a pill. We have to be very wise in how we apply these technologies. And if this is just about human hubris. This is where I think we need to be very careful, especially in the context of medicine. The focus should be about addressing medical conditions rather than just enhancement for its own sake. But as they say, first things first. Dr. Jodaran says we must first improve quality of life in specific targeted areas. We need to improve quality of life of children, especially in zip codes affected by poverty. It is important that we also economically develop these regions affected by poverty. It's again, nurture nature. I think we need to work on both sides and make sure that these individuals have access to good health care, but also live in an environment that is conducive to a healthy lifestyle. And accomplishing this is a shared responsibility to make a positive difference in our community. It's in the interest of everybody to have access to good health care. By doing so, we create better communities. Rather than thinking that others will have to take care of this problem here in Milwaukee, no, everybody should be part of the solution. So it's up to our community to participate in this movement. Time now to focus our CTSI on clinical trials. Here's Caleb Pierce. Thanks, Brian. This month, we look at an open and ongoing national clinical trial that's being conducted in part here in our community. To learn more, we spoke with Dr. Ashraf El-Manawi, Director of Dialysis at MCW Associated Hospitals and Associate Professor of Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. El-Manawi begins by telling us that the clinical trial he's overseeing revolves around a kidney disease known as autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, or ADPKD. It's a disease you have an abnormality in one gene that causes the kidneys to start making cysts. And these cysts increase and grow up with time, make the kidney big, squeeze the rest of the kidney, and cause kidney failure through life. He says someone with the disease could develop symptoms. They can have blood in the urine. These cysts sometimes can burst and cause pain. They can also have kidney stones, and stones is painful. As with many kidney diseases, it's more likely that someone with ADPKD will be without any symptoms. When they're young, they usually have no symptoms. A lot of them would have no symptom when this is growing. But kidney disease in general is so silent that nobody knows that they have kidney disease. But in time, ADPKD will affect normal kidney function. Kidney function will start to go down gradually through life. 
people will end up needing dialysis transplantation later on in life because the kidney stops functioning completely. It's not enough to sustain life. Next, Dr. El Manawi tells us that autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease is caused by a genetic mutation. Autosomal dominant meaning that all of us were born with two copies of every chromosome. One bad copy is enough to give you the disease. You can get it from one parent only. With that said, 10 to 15% of people, they didn't get it from anybody. They have the mutation and start growing gradually through life. Is ADPKD considered a rare disease? It's not super rare. It's relatively common. 4% of people on dialysis due to polycystic kidney. So it's not that rare of a disease. Prior to this clinical trial, how has it been treated? There's no treatment so far. We have no treatment. Just the FDA approved one drug recently for treatment of polycystic. It doesn't treat it. It actually slows down the disease progression. But there's no effective treatment. So we're looking for things that can be more effective. Which means to this point, it's incurable. Like a lot of other diseases, we don't cure it. A lot of time we just simply control it and just slow it down. So instead of, say, reaching the house in the age of 50, they reach the age of 60, 65. Okay. Now that we understand the disease better, let's explore the clinical trial. Dr. El Manawi explains that the study is investigating a drug he and others hope will lead to better outcomes for patients with ADPKD. This is a drug that through more than 20 years of work, they found if you block certain enzymes in the kidney, you can actually slow down the growth of these cysts. This isn't a new drug just newer in the treatment of this disease. This is a drug that's already FDA approved for other purposes, but we know it can actually slow down the growth of the cyst, so we know the effect. They know this because the clinical trial is now in its third phase. So phase one, we're looking at the toxicity. Is the drug going to be toxic to people? So the phases before were mainly to see the toxicity and those escalation, and in the same time, we looked at the kidney function. Is it going down faster? And now? Starting phase three, double-blind randomized. We're at a phase that we're randomizing patients either getting a sugar pill or the actual drug. So we know the effect and avoid the placebo effect. What's the name of the drug being used in the clinical trial? It's KD019. The drug which is approved has two names. One name for one purpose, one name for polycystic kidney. So as of now, it's called KD019, and it will acquire a name once it gets approved. He adds that the dose of the KD019 drug given to patients is different in this phase of the trial. The dose that we use, it's much smaller than the dose that's approved for other diseases. So we use a very small dose, honestly. But in the phases before, we used a higher dose, and people end up having like pimples like acne. Once we reduce the dose, it's not there anymore. Speaking of side effects, so far there haven't been any significant ones in this trial. We don't know anything that's big that happened that's specifically related to the drug, but people who will have side effects could pop out at any time in the future like any other drug. So we look at everything that's serious. And in keeping it real, he says there's always risk. The drug is relatively safe, but there's no thing as a drug without side effects. It doesn't exist. Medications are useful poisons. This is a fact about medications. As far as qualifications for participants, there are a few. One of them, how big their kidneys are. We look at this because we want to see that people actually will need a drug. We're not going to expose them to a drug for lifelong treatment if they don't need it. We want to make sure also their kidney is not totally gone. They need to have certain kidney function to allow us to see it going down. And if they're still wanting to be in the trial, we enroll them. In addition to taking the KD019 drug, what else does participation involve? The initial month, we have repeated labs. After those, they have a monthly visit. 
to get a physical exam given the new shipment of drugs and get an MRI on them repeatedly through the study. Participants are ideally in the study for two years. But as Dr. El Manawi reminds us... So they're in it for two years, but they can leave the trial anytime they want. Again, this is a national clinical trial with patients participating from all over. All different places around the country. Like in Los Angeles, there are patients in New York, there are patients in Ohio, there are patients in different places around the country. There are centers around the country that recruit patients. And the hope among all is that this trial will lead to better and more positive outcomes for patients in the future. So the hope that we have a drug that gets approved that delay dialysis or delay the reaching the point of end-stage kidney disease. Get you transplant at the age of 70 instead of 55. Lastly, Dr. El Manawi wants anyone with ADPKD to know that this clinical trial... It is good if you have polycystic kidney disease and you're not only helping yourself, you're helping other people too. And he wants everybody to understand... Having kidney failure is a really bad thing. Waiting on it, it's not going to make it go away. And nothing gets better with age except cheese and wine. Brian, we'll be sure to post links with more information on our CTSI website along with the podcast of this show. Up next, our CTSI on the community focuses on Milwaukee's Harambe neighborhood, where an organization there provides better access to healthier, nutritious food and opportunities for educational enrichment. We visited the neighborhood recently to meet with Beverly Tyree, Programs and Operations Director for Victory Garden Initiative, to discover how their organization is collaborating with others, including the CTSI, to advance the health of a community in need. First, Beverly shares what the Victory Garden Initiative is at its very core. Victory Garden Initiative is about building communities that grow their own food, create their own food access, and share with their neighbors. She says the initiative began with an identified need in the community. Our founding member was a social worker, and she was starting to see failing health in her clients and connecting what they were eating with their health. Community members got together and decided that they needed to change that. So it was really connecting what people eat with their physical and mental health. And we've been using that as our foundation since 2009. But in fact, the Victory Garden concept dates all the way back to the First World War. It was a government campaign to have people grow their own food and create a Victory Garden in their front yard right there so that they had food access while all of our supplies were being sent to the soldiers. Fast forward to today when the same community garden concept is being utilized to fight a very different battle. We are battling food system that does not serve equally, does not create equal food access. Our food is being exported or moved around in ways that create food insecurity. And so our focus is about having people creating that direct food access. And so today, the Victory Garden Initiative is on a mission to facilitate and create equal and more nutritious food access in communities that need it most. What that means is everyone, regardless of race, creed, gender, they have a right to have that. The solution to that is growing your own food because you then have the ultimate empowerment and control over what you're doing. It's empowering people to control the source and quality of food that fulfills their vision of positively impacting the lives of individuals, families, even entire communities. Whether it's introducing people to where their food comes from in the first place to recognizing the health of growing their own food. There's a lot of benefits that we see as a whole and we use that as our core mission and our vision. So how exactly does Victory Garden Initiative go about this? Our 
flagship program is called the Greater Milwaukee Blitz. Every May, we build gardens across Milwaukee, and then we fill them with beautiful soil, and they're ready for gardening. And in addition to the gardens they help others grow, Victory Garden Initiative also has after-school and summer programs for kids, training programs for adults, and more. So where do they do all of this? We have a 1.5 acre urban farm, and that is in the Harambe neighborhood, which is one of the lowest income, highest unemployment areas right in the middle of Milwaukee. And we use that as our outdoor education space as well. We'll take it to their urban farm in a moment. But first, Beverly tells us that Victory Garden Initiative works because of the help of many hands. We have about 850 to 900 volunteers and interns that join us, and they come, they learn while they're volunteering, so it's not just hard work, but they actually learn, and they take that back with them to their families, their neighborhoods, whatever they can. Could she take us to their urban farm? I would love to. So we walk down the block, and there it is. And while 1.5 acres may not sound big, in the heart of the city, this is a big urban farm. People walk up here and they're like, oh, this is nice. And then they walk around the corner and they're like, wow. It goes all the way from Concordia all the way to Townsend. So it's an entire block. And everything that we do here is either associated with food production or pollination. And like many farms, there's a serenity about it. If you listen, you don't hear the city sounds. We work very hard to create a safe space within the community. This past summer, the CTSI collaborated with Milwaukee Area Technical College in sending two of our CTSI 500 Stars interns to Victory Garden Initiative's urban farm. Heidi Cotty is Dietary Manager Program Coordinator at MATC's School of Health Sciences and was preceptor for the 500 STARS interns. I was asked to assist them in their research and I was thinking about how I could have them participate and Victory Gardens Initiative really came to mind with regards to food accessibility and health disparities with regards to nutrition. So she sent them to the urban farm. I have had them spend time at the Victory Garden Farm and see what does urban gardening look like. How can this impact the health of the community and how nutrition can play a role in that. Through this collaboration, students benefit greatly. We collaborate with Victory Gardens inside our MATC Dietetic Technician Program, which is why one of these 500 star students to participate because we know with service learning experiences, when you're actually having the hands-on experience, just increases the capacity for learning. And Victory Garden Initiative benefits from the students as well. Students offered Victory Gardens the opportunity to tap into their expertise and they always really do appreciate an additional set of hands and the students while learning also fill these roles so it really benefits each party all around. As mentioned, Heidi was preceptor for two of our CTSI 500 STARS interns. One of them taking on what are the psychological benefits of of gardening and finding the improved mood and the health and how that could really be beneficial, especially for particular communities that struggle with depression. She's talking about Alyssa Huguet, a senior this year at New Berlin West High School. I found how gardening reduces stress and depression because it gives a sense of control and distraction from your worries and pains and it allows you to relax and let go. Alyssa experienced the psychological benefits of gardening firsthand. When I first got to the garden, I was intimidated. But once I got into the garden, I felt really safe. I wasn't worried about social media, my friends, or what's happening. 
I was just having the time of my life. And Heidi's second intern. Taking a look at malnourishment and how these gardens can help alleviate some of that food accessibility concern. That student is Pawa Victoria, a freshman at Beloit College. There are many factors and variables to malnourishment, such as poverty and unemployment. An urban garden, it won't solve everything, but it will alleviate a lot of the issues. And she, too, got a hands-on experience in the garden. I did a lot of weeding, for sure, for sure, but it's contributing to my knowledge, so it was definitely beneficial. Heidi agrees. It's a great experience for the students and her. This was my first experience working with the 500 Stars program, and I don't think it could have turned out any better. And I know that it was as good of experience for them as it was for me. And she adds, the collaboration between MATC, CTSI 500 Stars, and Victory Garden Initiative is a partnership that just works. As I tell my students, nutrition is the foundation of good health. So this partnership is an opportunity to continue to nourish our community's futures literally from the inside out. Finally, back at Victory Garden Initiative, Beverly Tyree says if anyone wants to learn more or volunteer. We would love to talk with people if they want to be a gardener, if they want to be a volunteer, they can check out our website, victorygardeninitiative.org. You can always visit our farm. It's a great way to just meet people and be outside and get your hands dirty. Time for us to brush the dirt off our hands as we wrap up this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Fabrice Jodorand, Dr. Ashraf Almanawi, Beverly Tyree, Heidi Cotty, and our 500 Stars interns, Pawa Victoria and Alyssa Huguet. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month. So make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, along with Kayla Pierce, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.